last of my strength, I pulled something deep inside. Something deep inside. What are you doing? Please stop! Delay cryosleep! Delay cryosleep! These were his babies. They were mine. They call it Bone Patrol and it's mind numbing. It's 2 a.m. I'm freezing, despite it being a balmy 19 degrees outside. The lab has to stay cold as a tomb. We're right in the heart of Gothenburg, and the rest of the team are probably knocking back shots of Avakik, whilst I'm stuck here correlating the genetic markers of skeletal remains. Discerning the chicken scratch of field notes of interns and professors alike and feeding it into Excel. It all started when some yuppies decided to build a golf course deep within the forest of Karna Boxcog and the JCB stumbles for a medieval battlefield. The bog-like soil keeping everything preserved. Swords, axes, ringlets of leather armour and most of all bones scattered all over. Limbs, ribs, skulls all cracked and smashed and scored. A real bloodbath. The find that really gets the team chattering is the ribcage in the middle. Female, 60s maybe, not robust by any stretch. A puzzle in itself considering it's surrounded by the remains of buff 20-something Danish mercenaries. But no, what really gets the professors all goggly-eyed is the weird squat iron nail that's been smashed through its sternum. It's still stuck fast. I can see it poking out one of the many steel tables. All very exciting. A lot of boring sorting to do before any theories can get serious consideration. And that's where I come in. Bone Patrol. Correlating the markers of each bone sample to match them up with each other. A thousand year old jigsaw. One piece at a time. I've been at it for hours, listening to some old school R&B, when I noticed something. I get a hit on LV782. That's our special guest ribcage behind me. A complete left arm, 20 metres east of ribcage. A distance like that is a little... odd. I pay it no mind. Then again, LV782, right arm. Intact. 20 metres east. Now I'm not even correlating anymore, I'm scrabbling through the notes. LV782. Left leg and right intact, 20 metres away, south of ribcage. Keep looking, stomach on the floor, right at the back, practically the last page. Skull intact, 20 metres north of ribcage. LV782. What coincidence. Placement. And not found by the field team found by the scrawny intern they lumped with Bone Patrol. I wheel over to the drawers, grab all three samples and get to work. I've not assembled a skeleton since uni, but it goes faster than even those days. And my hands don't need to wait to be told. And there, under the harsh fluorescence, lays LV782. 
Oh, but do you have some stories to tell? It's then that I notice a squat iron nail. Under the intense glare, I can make out some... markings. Would have been hard to make out back in the forest. I shouldn't, but I do. Draw out the nail just as slow and gentle as I can. Bring it over to the magnifier. And there it is. Enough to make tenure. Enough to get a book tour. Letters carved intricately along the length of the thing. My breath is a whisper as I read. Axon. My Norwegian sloppy as hell, so I feel into Google, and as the answer loads on the slowest Wi-Fi, banging on the locked cabin door for an hour now. I can hear her voice calling my name and pleading to be let in. The wind is howling and buffeting against the curved windows and with every fifth heartbeat the ship takes a sickening lurch and shudders with a blow of another wave, water pouring over the deck, starting to pull, starting to weigh us down. Not long now. The storm is raging and I have steered us into it keeping the boat level with the brakes, a heresy to any sailor. I pray we are consumed before we are saved. Only two days ago it was clear blue skies and an ocean like glass. We had just begun a survey of the Mariana Trench with the echo sounder that my wife and I had helped develop. We promised a mapping of a geographic marvel with the clearest fidelity yet. At a depth of 30,000 feet, bounced back a strange echo sound wave that sung of straight lines and harsh corners, and when the computer generated a 3D image, the contours of reds and oranges suggested the shape of a coffin. None of the team wanted to speculate. Erosion is a chaotic force and any patterns that jump out are often machinations of the mind. Still, the bathysphere was prepped and ready to go, so we launched it that afternoon, then crowded round the monitor and glared at the fuzzy black and green image as it dived ever down, fathom after fathom, till finally it came to rest at the deepest recess that existed on the planet, a dark chasm that could swallow Mount Everest whole. A gasp went round the bridge. This was no fluke of water abrasion. What lay before us in grainy video feed had to be an object of human design, a squat black box utterly alien to the dull grey sediment surrounding it. We spent the rest of the day gingerly hauling it to the surface with a Bathysphere's armature, and when it finally broke the surface of the water, 
when the crane slowly swung it onto the deck. An almighty crack of thunder split the air, and I saw the bruised hues of a storm cloud on the horizon. Feverishly, we carried it below deck, and under the harsh glare of fluorescence, we pressure washed the eons of muck from its surface. Underneath was dense, dark stone, and as the water bubbled off onto the deck, ornate carvings started to emerge. My wife immediately started tracing out their queer patterns, hoping to ascertain their origins, though their appearance had no resemblance to anything the team could think of. Once more, the very layout was unsettling. There was no real order, no sense of craft, just a mishmash of crude pictographs, the carvings of a long, dead tongue savagely scarred across its length with a rushed hand. I left them all to their excited speculations as I headed back to the bridge to monitor the storm. By the time I returned, it was fully on us, and the violence of it was like nothing I'd known for that season. Then, I checked the MSI report. It stated there were no storms in the area. It showed as clear sky from Japan to New Guinea. I looked over to the camera feed of the lower deck. They were all still crowded round it, lost in speculation, barely noticing the ever-increasing lurches of wave troughs. Just then, the bow dipped sickeningly, and the strange box tipped off a table and hit the deck hard. And with it, the lid came off with a shudder, and something fell, slid out of the container and along the deck floor. Something black, something wet, something with such a foul stench that half the team fell to retching almost instantly. And then, on the fuzzy monitor, I saw it convulse with the unmistakable twitch of life once, twice, then wrenched its form into a grotesque motion and began tearing my colleagues to pieces, pulling apart flesh and bone like silken stick. All I could do was watch. There was no sound. The storm is raging. The bow is beginning to dip. The ship grows leaden in her movements. Not long now. This ship will sink to nature's deepest grave. I am a scientist. I approach every thought and problem with a rational mindset. I don't believe in God, but I do now believe in the devil. I watched it rip apart my wife, and now, on the other side of that door, it sings to me in her voice. Stephanie Hazel, written by Peter Gardner.
November 24th, in the year of our Lord, 1428, from the hand of Brother Harrod. This is the tale of our village hunter, William Murray, the best man of his craft throughout all of Wessex. On lean harvests and bitter winters, we would look to his bow arm to fetch us game from the shadowed forest. One month passed. He came to the yeoman and I at dusk, red of face, the mud still wet upon his boots. He sought private counsel in the yeoman's chambers. He wished for his words to stay in the ears of we three, lest fear spread among the people. He had trekked north as the crow flies for two score days, tracking deer. He sighted a plump partridge perched upon a yew branch and let fly a quarrel. The wind took it and it sailed yonder. Then a queer happening. A church bell rang out, deep and long amid the trees. The partridge flew, as did the pigeons and the foxes and even his quarry. The deer did bolt far and fast from him. William cursed his luck and followed the strange ringing, for he knew of no settlement nearby. A seasoned man of the woods such as he was not likely to have so grievously erred his course. The bell rang through oak and nettle, through elderflower and fir. His keen ear bade him to a dense hamlet and passed a thick hedgerow hacked back by his axe. Stood indeed a village, a village that made William, a man who'd felled a charging boar with his long staff, shake as if a child on a thunderous night. A village of shadow and green. A village that had not known laughter or yells or joy or work or prayer in a hundred years and more. The mud walls of the huts were cracked with the sun and filled with vine like maggots in a wound. The flagstones of the village square were overcome with weed. It was as if the very forest were digesting the place wholly. William walked forth till his foot did crunch, and when bowed low, he did not find among the tall weed with the white brittle bone of many lost souls crowded in the square, that which were left by the foxes and wild pigs, scattered bones of limb and rib and skull. A sad and impossible task to tell how many lay there, denied Christian burial. William paused at this, and the yeoman did fetch a beaker of his best wine to calm William's knotted brow. He gathered himself and carried forth. It was a simple village that numbered between fifteen and twenty huts, a smith's, a well, and church. The church was of modest flint wall, and bestrode the tower was the ill bronze bell that had bade him to this accursed place. Had it been rung in distress, William was loath to know, yet his good nature bade him on, for he was not a man to allow suffering if he had the power to stop it. He made for the church, and as he passed, the doorway of each dwelling spoke of a fetid nature. The church was shut, its doors locked and jammed with weed, forcing William to split apart their timbers with an axe and strength. Before him was the greatest horror of all. Locked away from the woods, savage nature, the fallen were more whole. Rancid flesh still knitted their bones together. Some pitiable, yet still sadly damned, were wrapped round the pews, eternally in prayer. 
William ventured through. Past the pulpit looked yonder and could see the modest bell with still the gentlest whisper of song upon its lip. The rope had rotted away and by his feet William did find his arrow. Had his aim been a finger to the left then this accursed place would have stayed hidden. He wished to depart immediately but a strange sight at the pulpit stayed his pace. Upon it the Bible lay open and words had been scrawled upon it in a black daub. At this, William pulled from his satchel the fated page and showed it to us. He had not the gift of reading. But this was no desecration, for upon looking at the page by flickering candlelight, I could see it no longer held any reverence. By rushed hand butted across John 13 with the words, The yellow crone cometh upon the fourth day. I burnt the page then, and scattered the ashes to the wind from the shuttered window, then bade William to continue. He returned to the village square and saw that the well was down, but it was late noon now, and the depths of the well were draped in thick shadow, and nothing could be seen by peering in it. People were known to seek for possessions of importance into wells when fleeing homesteads. This was no act of greed upon William's part, but merely a wish to return them to surviving kin. The rope was still strong, and the work hard for the load seemed heavy. William bore his back to the tarse till it could bear no more, so that he laid flat before the well. His legs bent hard against the stone wall, yanking at the rope, hand over hand. Till with one final mighty pull did the bucket clear the crest, and William did see in the fading noon sun what weighed it so. Tangled round the rope and bucket, dangling, was a corpse, dripping from the well. The cold dark of the well had sheltered it from the worst ravages of time. The flesh was swollen and limp, its hair hung lax across its face, across its bulbous lips, across its weeping white eyes that stared out at the prostrate William. And in the moment before he let go of the rope and tore asunder the silence of the square with scream of dread and the crash of the body and the bucket returning to their dark rest, William swore to us with trembling voice that the skin was quite, quite yellow. And with that, the tale was done. We put William to the yeoman's own bedchamber with a fresh beaker of wine. The yeoman and I then conferred and agreed that at month's end I myself would travel the day's walk to the King's Road to book passage with the merchant caravan to the city of Leicester. Once arrived, I would present myself to the abbot and speak of William's words. It would be upon the abbot's wise counsel that the proper action be taken. <laughs> but that was not to be. The next day, William fell sick. It was thought to have been an exhaustion of the mind caused by all that he'd seen, but a fever soon took, one that I could not break with any remedy. On the fourth day, he spoke not to me nor his wife, but to a shadowed figure in the corners of his hut that could be discerned only by his eyes. He called it Crone and it did vex him terribly, visiting upon him at all hours. By the fifth night, William Murray had passed from this world, 
and by morning, his skin did take a terrible yellow hue. By the sixth day, the yeoman then did take with fever as well, as did the smith and the Yeovil sisters. By week's end all my flock were afflicted. I, Brother Harrod, am now all that lives within the door fencing of this settlement. I know not why God is sparing me the fever. I can only humbly believe that he wishes me attend to my station and that I have striven to do. By daylight, I consign the dead to the earth as best I can with my feeble grip and soft back. I speak the words and scatter the soil and pray it is enough to save their souls. This letter and three copies will be nailed to posts 100 paces north, south, east and west. If these words are thus read by you, then beware. Travel no further as only death waits ahead. But heed, do not return to your homesteads for I fear my caution is not enough. I implore you to make camp and, and remain for the four days it took for the fever to take hold of poor William, and four more as caution. If on the fourth morning you are of sound body and mind, then you must thank God for this mercy and forever leave this valley. But if you are to feel an aching of the limbs, a watering of your bowels and a fire behind your eyes, and most of all, if you are to spy a crone waiting amongst the dark shadows of the wood, silently watching, then take small comfort that she will leave only with your soul and not that of your kin. By the hand of Brother Harrod, all praise be to God. Who is that who watcheth me? Performed by Roman Pohl. Written by Peter Gardner. All episodes produced by Dan Scout. Sound recordist James Wingfield. Post-production by Dan Scout. Music on Hatson by Audio Binger and Will Lamb. Fathom, Dan Scout. Who is that who watcheth me? William Lamb. Additional sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simons from Soundbite.com. For more information, plus previous and future episodes, please visit the iTunes store or 2bitproductions.com. The Whisper through the static.